it's based on my 20 years of working with people with addiction to drugs and alcohol and seeing what works for them. And then in clinical care, using those strategies and transferring them to people who have come in with addiction to screens, whether it's pornography, gambling, social media, video games, and finding that the same interventions that work for people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol are working for my patients who are addicted to screens in one form or another. Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast. Brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to North Star Unplugged. This is Kristen Rainey, and today I'm here with Dr. Anna Lemke, professor at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Clinic. She's the author of the book Drug Dealer MD about the opioid epidemic and the forthcoming book Dopamine Nation about compulsive overconsumption, including digital products. Finally, you may have seen her recently in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, about the impact of social media on our lives. Anna, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to focus our conversation today on your insights in the film, The Social Dilemma, and your two books. And first, I'd love to set some context for listeners So I know you divide your time at Stanford between teaching at the med school and serving as chief of Stanford's addiction medicine clinic. Will you share at a high level what you do in each of those roles? Sure. So starting with my clinical service first, I really am first and foremost a clinician, and that's how I self-identify. So in my role as chief of the clinic, I supervise other physicians and physician assistants and social workers, psychologists, but I also see patients together with medical students, residents, and fellows. So lots of clinical care, um, primarily of folks struggling with some sort of chemical or other addiction problem. And then my teaching role encompasses my clinical work. Most people don't think of teaching as being during clinical hours, but actually Medicine is an apprenticeship, and the way that we really learn medicine is to um, apprentice ourselves to somebody who's been doing it for a while. So I see almost all patients together with a resident or a fellow and or a medical student. So that's a big part of my teaching. But I also do lecture in the medical school and in other schools at Stanford, and I do a ton of lecturing in the community and at schools outside of Stanford. Very busy schedule. I'm very grateful that you were able to make the time for this interview in light of everything that's on your plate. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm happy to be here. And, you know, everyone's busy now. I mean, when people say to me, oh, you're busy, I'm like, everybody's busy. That's like the modern plague. We're all over busy. That is true. That is true. I'm still trying to start that one out. Yes, me too. What drew you to addiction medicine to begin with? Mm, That is a great question. So believe it or not, when I first went into psychiatry, 
I said, I will see anybody with any problem except addiction. And the reason for that was twofold, really. Number one, I hadn't learned anything in medical school or residency, believe it or not, about how to treat people with addiction. We hadn't even really been taught to conceptualize addiction as a disease. And number two, I had what we call my own negative countertransference toward people with addiction. My father was a high-functioning alcoholic. His brother drank himself to death. And so I had this sort of, let's say, aversion, right, on a, on a very kind of, I mean, I loved my dad. Let me just say I loved him. But, you know, there were problems there along the way. And I didn't have confidence that there were problems I could do anything about. But I eventually came to realize that my patients weren't getting better, in large part because I was ignoring this sort of elephant in the room that is substance use. And I had a patient who had a very bad outcome. She almost died in a rollover car accident. Her brother called me and he said, you know, she's been using again. And I said, using what? And he said, using heroin. Isn't that what you've been treating her for? And I was mortified because I had asked her about every conversation she'd ever had with her mother, but I had never asked her about substance use. So I had no idea she was even using heroin. And so that was sort of my moment when I realized, wow, I, I'm a bad psychiatrist. Like, I need to learn about addiction. This is crazy. So that was about 20 years ago, and that's how I got into it. Having spent a number of years myself working throughout Asia, I was really interested to learn that you had taught in China and you'd studied Mandarin for a year after undergrad. At that time, was there any potential that China might play a long-term role in your career? Or was the plan always that you would return to the U.S. and pursue med school and academia? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. No, I graduated from college and had no idea what I was going to do. Yale had this Yale and China program where you could go there and teach English. So, hey, that sounds interesting. I'll go there. It was a fantastic life experience for me. I came back from that China after a year and I could not find a job. Literally nobody would hire me. I'm like, I'll be a bank teller. I was either overqualified or underqualified for everything that I applied for. So I was like, okay, I'll be a Mandarin English elementary school teacher. And they were desperate that year for anybody who could like string two Mandarin words together. So I got this amazing job at Healy Elementary School in the south side of Chicago, where there were a ton of Chinese immigrants whose kids spoke no English. So I was their like sort of cultural introduction. And so anyway, that was exciting for me. And then somehow then I was like, well, I guess I'll go to medical school because I didn't really want to be an elementary school teacher for forever. You know, it was meandering. Let me put it to you that way. My whole life has, has been like that. I love it. Well, the meandering path is often the more interesting path. So I don't know. I, I kind of envy those people who sort of know what they want to do, but I'm not unhappy with where I ended up. Well, I'd love to talk a bit about your first book, Drug Dealer MD. And I know that you note that according to the CDC, three out of four people addicted to heroin probably started on a prescription opioid. And I'm just wondering, how did we get to this place where in the U.S., 16,000 people die every year as a result of prescription opioid overdose? If I could communicate one message about the opioid epidemic, it's that one of the biggest risk factors for becoming addicted to any substance is simple access and exposure to that substance. If you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to try them and more likely to get addicted. What happened starting in the late 1990s is that doctors started prescribing way more opioids for minor pain conditions, 
for chronic pain conditions at high doses, very long term. And all of a sudden, there was just a flooding in the society of all of these prescription opioids, meaning that patients themselves were getting addicted, but also teenagers finding leftover pills in medicine cabinets were exchanging them or trading them at school, and those kids were dying and getting addicted. So, so that's really sort of you know, as succinctly as possible, what happened? We flooded our society initially through prescription opioids. People got addicted. They died. Those who got addicted eventually turned to cheaper and more potent sources, heroin and illicit fentanyl. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin and just a little bit can kill you. And that's why we're seeing skyrocketing overdoses, even though we're now prescribing fewer opioids. I know you were also finding in your own practice that your own patients weren't getting better. They were asking for more meds, higher doses, and you were able to use California's prescription drug monitoring program to see online what else your patients were getting from other doctors. What did you learn that your patients were up to? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it was a shocker, right? I had these little old ladies who I never in a million years thought were addicted to medications I or anybody else was prescribing only to discover they'd been around to see a doctor a day every day of the week in the week prior to seeing me. Benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin, Ambien. I had a patient who was crossing state lines to get more Ambien once we started checking the prescription drug monitoring database because he knew we couldn't see what you know he was getting in Arizona. And then, of course, lots and lots of opioids in high doses from multiple doctors, from emergency rooms, and scarily opioids in combination with benzodiazepines like Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, which is a really deadly mixture. In your 2016 interview with NPR's Terry Gross, you talk about how much our relationship with pain has evolved over the last hundred years. First of all, how has it evolved and what do you think is at the root of that change? Well, I mean, the biggest change is that prior to about 1950, pain was considered the consequence of a disease process or an injury. There really wasn't this concept that you could have pain independent of visible, objectively verifiable disease or injury. Now we have a multitude of pain syndromes for which there is no actual evidence of disease or injury. It's sort of pain in the brain. So so that's one thing. The other major shift is that, you know, prior to about 1900, Doctors actually believed that pain had some beneficial effect, that it expedited healing, that it boosted the cardiovascular response. There was this idea that there are spiritual benefits to suffering. That really changed over the last 50 to 100 years. We now have this idea that pain is dangerous in any form, physical, mental. You got to get rid of it. If you don't get rid of it right away, you're setting yourself up for future pain in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder or centralizing chronic pain syndromes, and that it became the purview of physicians to eliminate pain, to do whatever they could, prescribe opioids at higher doses if that's what it takes. And that is essentially what contributed largely to this problem of opioid overprescribing, which led to the epidemic. And for those who haven't yet seen the 2020 Netflix film, The Social Dilemma, Anna, of course, is one of several experts and tech leaders who are interviewed. And the film addresses the addictive nature of social media. On average, we spend four hours a day on our phones, and probably this was higher this past year during COVID, right? Do you think that that was a lot higher because we were all in lockdown and stressed and a number of other things? 
Yes, there, there's no doubt that consumption of all screens in all different forms went up during the pandemic. Yeah. Is social media addiction any different from opioid addiction? And how does social media impact our mental health? Well, I think the first sort of truism is that social media can be a drug and that it is engineered to be a drug. So it is, it, they have created this digital product to keep us engaged using all kinds of well-known psychological methods, very potent, vivid colors, which, you know, go right to the cortex and stimulate good feelings, beautiful faces and other exciting images with flashing lights and movement, things that our brains are designed to hone in on. The like button, anytime you enumerate something, you potentially make it more addictive whether it's in a video game, rankings or likes on an image, those contribute to the addictive nature. And then, of course, you have this sort of bottomless bowl, the infinite quantity. And remember, access and exposure are one of the biggest risk factors. So if you have an infinite quantity of a drug and you have unlimited 24-7 access in the form of your smartphone, you're much more likely to get addicted to it. That's sort of my central message that I want to communicate to folks that all good things in moderation, but just know that you're consuming a drug when you're on social media and that if you're vulnerable to the problem of addiction, you could get addicted to social media. How is it different from opioids? I mean, opioids are a chemical that you ingest. Opioids are marketed as medicine, making their our relationship with them more complicated. Opioids are lethal at a dose that's very close to the therapeutic dose. That's not really true for social media. Um, I mean, people, I have seen patients who are depressed and suicidal because of their overconsumption of social media, but social media in and of itself isn't going to stop your heart beating the way that opioids can. So there's a lot of overlap, but there are distinct differences. Earlier, you you've mentioned just how impactful our colorful screens can be. And I remember hearing from someone recently that simply switching their phone to black and white mode actually enormously impacted their use and decreased their use of their phone, which I thought was really fascinating. What a simple fix, right? I'm just curious, what can we do about this? I mean, how can we have healthier boundaries? Is it simply a matter of deleting Facebook, Instagram, other apps from our phones? I know a lot of people did some drastic changes after watching that film. It was quite impactful. I'm just curious, what advice do you have for people who are really trying to have a more thoughtful relationship with all of our gadgets and with social media in general? Yeah. So this is basically what my forthcoming book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence is about. And it's based on my 20 years of working with people with addiction to drugs and alcohol and seeing what works for them. And then in clinical care, using those strategies and transferring them to people who have come in with addiction to screens, whether it's pornography, gambling, social media, video games, and finding that the same interventions that work for people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol are working for my patients who are addicted to screens in one form or another. And the first point of intervention is a dopamine fast, which is to say a period of fully abstaining from the drug. And the reason that that's so important is because what happens in our brains when we're chronically and habitually ingesting high dopamine products, that is to say things that release a lot of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway, is that we essentially end up down-regulating our own dopamine transmission and our own dopamine receptors as a way to compensate 
for the bombardment of dopamine through our use of these products. And ultimately, we put our brains into a dopamine deficit state where we're anhedonic or lacking in joy unless we're doing our drug, right? So it's this idea, yeah, I feel great when I'm watching YouTube videos, but I feel really awful right after I stop. And that feeling really awful right after you stop is exactly what the brain does to keep you going, right? That's the biological hook that you essentially go into this dopamine deficit state, and then you want to keep going so as to avoid that fall. And if you do your drug every day for hours a day, you end up in a chronic dopamine deficit state that doesn't reverse right when you stop. It takes some time. And in my experience working with patients, on average, it takes about a month abstaining from our drug of choice to reset the brain's reward pathways, to regenerate our own dopamine and our own dopamine receptors, and to regain a what we call a hedonic or joy set point that allows us to be present in the moment, not mentally preoccupied with using our drug, able to enjoy more modest rewards. So what I recommend is that people actually dopamine fast. If they can't do a month, you know, do a week. If you can't do a week, good Lord, do a day. Even a day can potentially make a difference. You know, turn off your smartphone, lock it in a safe and walk away for a whole day. And when you do, what's really fascinating, if you're really paying attention, you will notice that you go into withdrawal. You experience like restlessness, anxiety, irritability, FOMO. Your brain will come up with a million and one reasons why, even though you committed to abstinence, you should really go check your phone right now. But if you can ride that out and wait for your dopamine pathways to reset themselves, what you'll find is you start to feel a sense of separation from the drug, a sense of freedom. You're not thinking every five minutes, oh, I got to check my phone. I got to check my phone. I got to check my phone. It's a really fascinating a very liberating experience. And if you can do it for longer than that, you may even get to the place where like the last thing you want to do is go back to using, right? And people who come in with depression and anxiety, you know, suicidality even, I will recommend this dopamine fast and they'll come back a month later feeling so much better, less depressed, less anxious. So what I'm trying to say here is it's really insidious because these products make us feel good in the moment. But over the long run, they actually contribute to feelings of depression and anxiety. What's the longest that you've gone? Have you done this experiment yourself with locking away your phone or other devices? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I have to admit, I don't actually use a mobile phone. And the reason for that is because I know that I would have trouble controlling my use. Like I would be on it constantly. So um, although I do own an iPhone, it's turned off and in my bag for emergency purposes, like all the time. I really only take it out if I need to call an Uber or something to go to the airport. That's just something that I, I did for me. And my husband also uh, doesn't own a phone. <laughs> now we have four teenagers and the two older ones went out and bought their own phones. And they're like, you're crazy. At one point, they did teach me how to use the phone. So I do have some basic literacy but I don't use phone. I'm not on any social media. And I can tell you, I don't feel out of touch. Do you know what I mean? I don't feel like I don't know what's going on in the world or I don't feel like I don't know what the latest like gem finding. I mean, I know all that information will come to you. Do you know what I mean? But of course, I have things that I do online that I do too much of. 
if anything, I'm addicted to my work. I'm addicted to my email. I am certainly addicted to certain types of YouTube videos that I sometimes watch to relax. So what I do is I just follow my patient's lead and I use the tricks that they use. And I talk about these at length in the book. I set time boundaries. I'm only going to do it on this many days a week. I'm only going to do it this many hours a day. There are certain like YouTube videos up. I cannot watch those because once I start watching those, I'm gone. Like four hours later, I'm in a very ugly place. (laughs) So, you know, it's creating these kind of both literal, physical and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice. And how long ago did this happen? I mean, was it the case that you basically never got on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera? Or was there a point a couple of years ago where you basically decided to cancel all your accounts? And same question about your phone. Was there a time when you actually did utilize a smartphone and abused it excessively the way the rest of us do? Or did you just never really get involved with using a smartphone aside from important things like calling an Uber? Yeah. So I never really got hooked on smartphones. I never joined Facebook or Twitter or any of those, but I did get a Kindle and I got immediately hooked on trashy novels. And I talk, <laughs> I talk about that at length in my forthcoming book. I mean, I actually got addicted and I had to throw away my Kindle. I mean, I, like it was a two year period and I was like, I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm not doing any, any other work. So, you know, if it's not one thing, it's another. And I'm certainly the last person who's immune. And also, let me just say that in this day and age, like everybody's vulnerable because even if it's not like drugs or alcohol or Twitter, like you'll find something like there's something out there now for all of us, right? Just sort of perfectly tweaked to fit our brains. So although I didn't get into the smartphone and social media per se, I mean, like I said, I have my problem. How do you help or not with your kids with boundaries around social media? Do you enforce any constraints with them or is it a free-for-all and and they are trying to figure this out themselves like every other teenager? When our kids were zero to about 13 years of age and we actually had control over them, we really restricted their access. We didn't even have Wi-Fi to the house. So that's just something that we chose to do. Nobody had devices in the house. The house was really kind of like a tech-free sanctuary. Of course, at school, they were on the screens all the time. You know, we couldn't do anything about that. But we could make our home a tech-free sanctuary. But once our kids got older, and especially when they entered high school, they essentially came home and said, I cannot function unless you get Wi-Fi to the house. So we got Wi-Fi. Then a week later, our daughter's like, yeah, well, I bought my own phone. Too bad for you. And now, essentially, they're doing their own thing. I have lost complete control. But here's what I do. I do a lot of trying to educate and not scream and imposing, especially for our younger ones still, limits, you know, and saying, hey, this is candy. You know, you would not want to get up and start eating candy first thing in the morning. Do your chores, do your homework, do something for the family. And then if you want to play video games for an hour or two, okay. I mean, I I can see how that's reasonable, but it has really not been easy. And I want to acknowledge that it's not like because I do this work, I have all the answers or my kids are like perfect little moderating using. No, I mean, huge, terrible, right? Like put that away. Stop. We're having a conversation. Can you spare me 30 seconds? You know, it's, it's really tough. I don't know where it's all going to go. 
So, of course, you mentioned earlier your new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Was writing that a logical next topic from your earlier book, Drug Dealer MD? Can you share more about what was the trigger? You're obviously very busy and writing a book is a huge commitment. So what was the trigger in in saying, okay, now is the time I really need to write this book? It was a natural next book in the sense that there were themes that I write about in Drug Dealer MD that I really wanted to flesh out and explore in Dopamine Nation more broadly, especially the neuroscience. Like I had found that in my teaching and also clinically, neuroscience really resonates for people. When they understand what these drugs are doing to the brain, it kind of gives them like a little bit of a like a tool to make sense of their behaviors and inform their choices. So I really, really, as soon as I finished Drug Dealer MD, Dopamination was already really in my head, sort of the accumulated, let's say, knowledge of, you know, 20 years of, of treating people with addiction and wanting to get out there this idea that we're living in a dopamine overloaded world, that we're all vulnerable. By that time, I had already recognized my own addiction and had worked through it, basically relying on my patients' ideas to treat myself. And I thought, you know, I'm not somebody who's naturally prone to the problem of addiction. Like drugs and alcohol have never been appealing to me, but look, I found my drug and the pattern was similar. So I wanted to communicate this idea that we're all vulnerable to addiction and that we have to, with intention and foresight, navigate a world that is really unprecedented. We have more drugs in higher potency, quantity, and variety than ever before in the history of humankind. How are we going to live in this world? And I think that in many ways, people in in recovery from severe addictions are modern day prophets for the rest of us, you know, offering us an opportunity to understand how to proceed. And abandoning your Kindle was that was inspired by your patients and their solutions of basically, you know, get the the cue out of your house so that you won't read your trashy novels. I mean, that was basically inspired by them. Yeah. I mean, my patients, they've come up with all kinds of amazing, like, I mean, I have patients who like when they're traveling before they get to the hotel, they tell them to remove the mini bar. Sometimes they say remove the mini bar and the TV, you know, again, these kind of physical barriers, that's just one type of, I call these self-binding strategies. So self-binding strategies, things we can do in advance of temptation. Like if we wait till we're tempted, it is very, very, very difficult to not indulge. But if we set up these literal and metacognitive barriers before we're tempted, we are much more successful. And with your book featuring many different stories from your patients, was it hard to convince them to share those? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I've given a great deal of thought to, because of course, you know, when you go and see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know, it's an intimate, private space. You're revealing extremely intimate things about your life. You want to feel and know that it's a safe place. So I I was very careful when I talked to my patients and I explained to them, you know, outside of clinical care, hey, I'm writing this book. I would love to include some of your experiences, but, you know, I'm going to do it anonymously, but I want you to feel comfortable with it. How would you feel about that? And also, I even went so far as to say is, you know, as someone who knows you really well, even if we disguise your name and, you know, the exact location and some other demographics, they might recognize your story. How would you feel about that? And it was really interesting because, I mean, I was careful in who I selected, you know, people who were well along in their recovery and I felt like would be 
more interested in sharing their stories. And really all of them were eager to share what they have, have learned because what happens when you struggle with addiction and get into recovery is there is this sense that you have found something special in terms of a, a way of living in the world. And that in, in, for some people really almost feeling like their addiction is a gift because without their addiction, they wouldn't have arrived at this wisdom that they've acquired through their addiction. And there's a ton of wisdom in recovery. So yes, I was careful. I did a lot of kind of offering, but only wanting people to accept if they felt really comfortable with doing that. And everybody whose story I've included, including in Dopamine Nation, where I reveal a lot of very intimate details about people's addictive lives. There was this mission-driven sense that the people in that book felt of wanting to help others through what they themselves had learned. Where, if at all, does meditation, sleep, exercise, does any of that fit into treating addiction in your world? Oh, yeah. I mean, so meditation fits into alternative sources of dopamine, more adaptive and healthy sources of dopamine. And certainly people who have a meditative practice and do it regularly um, will tell you that they get, you know, endorphins, dopamine, they feel good from it. There's, But it's subtle and it's adaptive. And it, it's I, I think it'd be hard to get addicted to meditation, but, you know, possible, possible. In terms of sleep, that's just basic restorative self-care, which is obviously fundamental to mental health in general, but also especially to avoiding addiction. And then exercise is really fascinating. So I, what I talk about in Dopamine Nation quite a bit is this idea of using pain in small doses as a way to access dopamine and a more healthy uh, again, adaptive source of dopamine and exercise is certainly that. So the, the runner's high that you get after exercise, that's because you have a increase in endoendorphins, endocannabinoids, dopamine, all of that goes up and, say, and stays up for a sustained period after exercise. So that's absolutely vital. But again, as I talk about my book, it's also possible to get addicted to exercise. So it's about finding that balance. Well, I'm very excited to, to check out your book. With everything that's on your plate right now, multiple hats at Stanford, writing books, appearing in films, raising kids, how do you recharge? Oh, well, um, thank you for asking. I mean, really writing these books is one of the primary ways that I recharge now. My life is very people intensive. Between being a parent and being a clinician, I have a lot of intense people interactions, which I'm grateful for and really feel is really a privilege. But to have this retreat where I can be by myself in a room and just think and write is incredibly restorative for me that the create that creative process a period of uninterrupted silence is very very restorative for me i have to really work hard not to interrupt myself which i think we're all increasingly prone to do but once i get past those early self interruptions it is very meditative for me to just be able to be quiet and to think and to be by myself and to be by myself. The other way that's been a lifelong way that I kind of rejuvenate is exercise. But as I'm aging, I'm less able to do that. And so it's been interesting for me to have to manage my grief around that loss and having to temper some of the intensive exercise activities that I used to do. And what were those activities that you used to engage in? 
Oh, I mean, 100-mile bike rides, backpacking into the wilderness, carrying a heavy pack, long-distance swims. I mean, all of these kind of endurance sports, being outdoors and in nature. And now I really limited in my ability to do those. And your writing process, I mean, imagine things were quite different since you wrote part of the book during COVID as well, when you might not have had as many activities. But Typically, would you write early every morning, late at night, a little bit every day, big chunks on the weekends? How did you fit it in in light of everything else on your plate? Yeah. So let me say that before I wrote Drug Dealer MD, I had no idea how to write a book. And I had to read a bunch of books on how to write a book, books that were incredibly helpful. And I only had one day per week when my kids were in school. This was pre-COVID, obviously. And I was at home and in the house alone. And it was just like one day a week for two years. So it was very slow process because that I had very limited time. But those days were glorious because like I said, you know, I just had the whole house to myself and it was quiet, no interruptions, no pharmacy phone calls, nothing. And drug dealer MD was really a, you know, an exciting, steep learning curve for me. And in writing Dopamine Nation, I felt like I had a much better sense, having written one book, how to tackle the second book. And now I feel like if I were going to write a third book, just like everything, the more you do it, the more you learn and you get better at it. And so now for Dopamine Nation, well, that was interesting because I was about halfway done or probably three quarters of the way done when quarantine hit. And then quarantine was just like a godsend for me because I was behind. And all of a sudden, like I had all this time. And so that was a nice stretch where I got to work every day for a while. So I don't really have a set thing whenever I can find the time. And has your sleep improved since you stopped reading trashy novels on your Kindle? Oh, yes. My sleep has improved. But then I went through menopause and then my sleep got bad again. So, you know, life is never dull, but it's, you know, I I sleep pretty well. Are there any magic sleep tips that have worked for you over the years or has it been very different over the years in terms of what's been effective in helping you sleep? Well, I've always been a reader and I've always read myself to sleep, but the key is what I read. So now I read a lot of philosophy and history. So things that are like challenging rather than super, super intoxicating. Do you know what I mean? And so like one page and I'm out, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) So what I read really matters. I've also found interestingly, um, so consolidating sleep really helps trying not to nap. So I build enough sleep debt, but also not going to bed too late, you know, really kind of making sure that I'm falling asleep when the sun is going down optimally. So trying to tie my circadian rhythms to sleep, but sleep is a challenge. That's super interesting. Yeah, on the circadian rhythms, I I was just attending a virtual sleep conference last weekend, actually. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, it was on the weekend. But in any case, (laughs) the most interesting debate of the entire conference was about daylight savings time and standard time. And the basic gist is there's a lot of sleep experts out there who think, A, we shouldn't be switching because during that switch, our bodies have a really hard time. But a lot of people are saying that actually we'd all be better off if we stayed on standard time because it's better for us to have light during the morning and not later in the evening and that our bodies actually never truly make the switch and therefore we're just off cycle. And then of course, we're also just getting less sleep because it's here where I am in Bozeman, it's light till like 9.30 PM in the summer. So it's very interesting what you're you're mentioning about the circadian rhythm is fascinating. Yeah, that is interesting. I was just a part of a a speaking group and one of the scientists who studies the cycles of the moon, they have come up with some very interesting data showing that 
Um, when there's a full moon, people have more nocturnal awakenings. Fascinating. Yeah, right? So more moonlight will also wake us up in the middle of the night. And then, of course, you know, he kind of hypothesized that there's sort of a evolutionary reason for that, like night hunting or night mating, that there are some advantages to being up at certain cycles of the moon. So anyway, those are all interesting things. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. And on the topic of books, do you have any book recommendations for listeners? Oh, yeah. So a book that I think is excellent, it's very dense and very erudite, is called The Age of Addiction by David Courtright. And it's funny because he wrote was wrote his book at the same time that I was writing Dopamine Nation. And they're very similar themes, and, but his is much more, he's a historian, much more of, of a historical overview. And mine, of course, is embedded in these very intimate clinical stories of addiction and recovery. So I recommend that one. An oldie but a goodie is Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, written by, he was a, um, I believe, a journalist. And I think he published the book in like the 1960s or 70s, but he just talks about how media has changed over time, such that one of his quotes is, you know, we're no longer exchanging ideas, we're exchanging images, which I thought, oh my gosh, how prescient for the time that we live in now. And then the third book that I'd recommend is a book by a psychoanalyst, Mark Epstein, another old one. It's called Going on Being, and he is a Buddhist and also a psychiatrist, and he does a wonderful job of interweaving Buddhism and psychiatry in a way that, of course, for me as a psychiatrist is fascinating, but I often recommend it to my patients, especially young people who are trying to find their identity. Well, those sound like great titles, and we will include those for everyone in the show notes, which everyone can find at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, I am just so happy to have been here. It's been great to talk to you. And for listeners, be sure to check out Anna's work and her upcoming book, Dopamine Nation, at annalemke.com. And I'll spell that A-N-N-A-L-E-M. B-K-E dot com. Thanks everyone for tuning in, for subscribing to the podcast, for leaving a rating or review, and for sharing this episode with a friend. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.